over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, some of the things that Michael Eden shared up in Swanwick, and I'm going to continue this morning with that. Uh, he talked about us being adopted as sons, and the whole theme of the four or five days we were up there was one of adoption. And uh, Nick kind of started the process by talking about how we as sons and daughters have full access to God. And uh, last week, Trevor carried on and talked about God's provision. And uh, I'm going to talk this morning about the Holy Spirit. It's one of the other privileges that we have as sons and daughters is that we have full access by the Holy Spirit to Christ, but we have full access of the Spirit in our lives. And I wanted to just kind of start by throwing out this little challenge to you as I challenge myself. How many of us really come each week to these meetings with an expectation that God really is going to move? That His power is here by the power of His Holy Spirit, that He wants to transform lives, that He wants our hearts to be open and expectant to all He's going to do? Or do we really come, if we're honest with ourselves, with like, well, we'll just see what happens. And you know, what can, what can God do through Ant anyway? Because we've heard him for 10 years and he's really, he's okay, he's a nice guy, he's a reasonable preacher. But what can God really do through him? What can God really do through Nick or, or Mike or, or Trevor? I mean, we know these guys. What, God, what can God really do through them anyway? Or is the expectation in our hearts of, it's Jesus who moves by the power of His Spirit, regardless of who's preaching, who's leading the worship. And our expectation is, God, we've come to meet with you. We, we want to meet with you. We are desperate for your presence. How desperate really are we? And I'm speaking to myself as I've been just doing some reading and trying to clear my head in the last couple of weeks of some things and just say, God, I do believe that you can move again. I do. I believe he can move. I believe it takes a few men and women to be radically impacted by the power of the Holy Spirit and then he can move and use them just as he did in the past in this nation and this nation can be radically transformed. It can. I'm so tired of hearing people saying, oh, I'm so nervous about the schools in the country. I'm tired of it. You know why? It's not faith. It's not speaking by faith. I'm speaking to myself now. It's not speaking by faith that, God, you can move and do something with our kids. You can. And my child can be a shining light to this nation. My child can be sold and out. We, what do we want to do otherwise? We want to just get into our little, little circle of friends and just be safe. And God is calling us to be salt and light. God is calling us to be light to this nation and to shine with the light of Christ. What do you think, what other hope is there? Is your hope in Tony Blair or Mr. Clegg? Oh, it's not even Tony Blair, who's it? Brown. I see, I don't even know anymore. Is your hope there? Well, I, I pray for good government. I want good government so the gospel can be preached, so we can live good, uh, peaceful lives. But my hope is not there. My hope is in Jesus. Jesus transformed this nation decades ago, and I want to speak about some of the revivals today. Jesus did. By the power of His Holy Spirit, and He can do it again. That's where our hope should be, in the cross of Christ. Amen? So I can, I've got four scriptures I want to read with you. I've chosen them purposefully. Because we want to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning. We want to talk about God releasing the power of the Holy Spirit upon every life. John 3 verse 5 is where we're going to start. And then we're going to go to Romans 8, Acts 2, and we're going to go to Galatians to finish. And I'm going to read these portions. I trust it's going to be an encouragement to you. I trust that your heart will be stirred with a noble theme. God so loved the world that He sent His Son that whoever believes in Him 
to not perish, but have eternal life. And when we believe in Him, when that, that powerful thing happens on the inside, from the inside out, we become children of God at that point. Well, that's what Romans 8 says. We're going to read Romans 8 verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You cannot come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit draws, leads, and brings revelation of the need of Christ into your life. It's by, no one can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Spirit. When we are born again, we do receive the Spirit. Absolutely. But now let's look at Acts 2. Chapter 2. Oh, what a wonderful chapter. Acts 2, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed. They were astonished and said, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya that belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Man, there's just this huge list of people all hearing their own language as the Holy Spirit is poured out. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Don't you want to be in a meeting like that? Okay. Okay. Yes, I want to be in a meeting like that. But God pours himself out and there's just tongues and people are speaking and everyone can understand. We had this amazing experience a couple of years ago. We were in France and Helen started speaking in this tongue and it sounded like French. And we were going, what is this? It sounds like French. And so we asked, we asked Lee and, he took, took, and it was an ancient form of French. They could, the French people could understand some of the words. And that's, that's by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the great missionary movement, some of the missionaries trusted that when they went out to, to preach the gospel, God would give them the tongue of the nation that they were going to. Do you know that people trusted like that? And the history proves some of that happened. By the power of the Spirit. So I'm not going to learn the language. I'm going out trusting that God's going to give me, and they did. It's not lies. I'm not making up stories. This is true. What is our expectation of what God can do in us and through us? Hmm. And uh, they said, what does this mean? And others were mocking and they said, they are filled with new wine. <laughs> but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judah and those who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk. As you suppose... It's the only third hour, third hour of the day, so it's about nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered to the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants, the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below. 
Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he prophesies of what's happening. And so we have these two things in the, new, in, the, in the Bible. We have, when we are saved, we receive the Spirit. And then there are these events, these amazing times where God comes and pours Himself out tangibly. And there are signs and wonders, and people are amazed and perplexed and saying, what is this? What is going on? And it's the power of the Holy Spirit present in a radical way. Galatians 4 verse 6, and this is what Michael uh, Eaton started with up in Swanwick, says this. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts so that we can cry, Abba, Father. And this tension that I'm speaking of is, is, a, is a tension that has been present in all of church history. And I, why, I, I want to do a little historical thing just to show you something of church history and hopefully excite you in terms of where we are now, what our expectation can be of what God can do now. All right? So we have the sense that God comes, Acts chapter 2, there's this powerful outpouring and it leads to the believers being released in, in all over the ancient world and churches are planted and in the first couple of hundred years of church history, there's radical life, churches being planted, signs and wonders, the testimony of Paul and the other apostles is amazing and, on, and we read all of that in the New Testament. Absolutely amazing, the first couple of hundred years of, uh, of church history. But already by that time, towards the end of those 200 years, already there are signs where the church is losing track. It's already going a little bit off course, and there are already some heresies that are beginning to take, um, take root in the church. And the Roman church has been birthed, and there's all this political stuff and, and uh, power that is mixed up with the structure of the church. And over a period of time, the church begins to decline, and uh, we've seen... If you know any of churches, you see that through the Middle Ages, the medieval times, there was just rampant stuff in the church, political stuff with the popes, and there was power, and people, the crusades happened, and all that stuff, which was not rooted in the gospel, but was rooted in a church political structure. And all through church history, God brings moments where He breaks in by His Spirit just to uh, revive the church again. And one of those great moments happened in the Reformation. Powerful, powerful thing happened in the Reformation where people like Calvin and Luther started to rediscover from their own wrestlings with God. They looked at the church and they said, this cannot be it. I mean, Luther was a monk and he was a monk in the Roman church and he, he just said, this cannot be it. This cannot be the fullness of, God, of the gospel. And he reads Romans and he reads Galatians and revelation comes to him that there is no other way to be saved, not by works, not by penance, not by paying money to the church, no other way to be saved except by the blood of Jesus. And he begins to preach that simple thing to the community and something starts to happen. At the same time, there's a guy called John Calvin He's doing the same thing. He's, uh, he's beginning to root himself in the gospel. But this thing of how we experience the Holy Spirit has been a tension because those men that preached those reformational doctrines didn't have an experiential view of the Holy Spirit. Their view, and John Calvin was called the great, or the, the reformers was called the great theologian of the Holy Spirit. Their understanding of the Holy Spirit is that you receive the Holy Spirit when you're saved and then God just kind of by the power of the Spirit, quietly works in you to transform you to be like Jesus, but there's no evidence of the power. And they believed 
that if there was evidence of the power, that was kind of the, the lunatic fringe of the church. It was kind of the weirdos on the other side expected the power of God to come. All right? And um, Michael gave this story. When he was a student 40 years ago, he was up at Cambridge as well. He was studying at Cambridge, and he was, there was a conference at uh, the Swanwick venue where we were, and there was a guy called J.R. Packer. Everyone, anyone read some of his books? J.R. Packer, wonderful theologian. And he was talking around the Holy Spirit, and Michael went to him afterwards and asked this question. He asked a question about the Holy Spirit, and his, he was interrupted, and J.R. Packer said to him, the baptism of the Spirit is not an experience, but an initial event. Now, you see, our words betray what we really believe. So for Packer, he was saying that what we experience with the Holy Spirit is that rebirth, and that's, that's all that we experience. The Holy Spirit comes, we're transformed, we're made alive, but it's, our experience of the Holy Spirit is it's not a conscious thing. Michael gave this example. It's like, the, it's like saying when you are flying in an airplane, uh, you cross the equator. It's like when you cross the equator, the, 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 the airplane doesn't shake, and there's an announcement on the thing. You've now crossed the equator. It's like it's an unconscious thing. You're just sitting in your seat. One moment you are south of the equator. Next moment you are north of the equator. And that's what these guys believe. That's how you experience the Holy Spirit. It's just a, it's not a conscious thing. You don't experience it with your emotions. or in, It's just God is at work in, in you. Am I making myself clear? So this thing of how we experience the Holy Spirit has been a key thing throughout history. And we come to this Galatians 4 scripture which says, by the power of the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, for me, that seems to be something that you experience. You cry, Abba, Father. I mean, you're experiencing it right there. So these Reformation uh, theologians um, didn't have a full experience, a full theology of the experience of the Holy Spirit. And then we come a little later to the Puritans. And the Puritans, as the name suggests, the Puritans wanted to further purify the church. And they had a, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit that went a little bit further, and they believed in the working of the Holy Spirit. That They used words like, the Holy Spirit sheds the broad, abroad the love of Christ in our hearts. They were expecting something to happen experientially. And they talked about outpourings, and they talked about uh, floodings of the Holy Spirit. And there's some great guys that uh, taught into that, out of the Puritan movement. And again, after that, it died down a little bit. And then we come to the 1700s, and that's where I've been really excited because I read two books recently, one on Wesley and one on uh, Whitfield, and a third one that I'm starting on Wilberforce, who came a little bit later, later and he was the guy that helped to do, do away with slavery. But in the 1700s, the early 1700s, the Europe and the UK was in a dire, dire state. It was politically uncertain. The economy was, was at a low ebb. They'd been fighting wars literally for hundreds of years. It was decadent. If you read anything of the 1700s, men, women, and children in London, there was just rough prostitution. Kids in the, in, in the age of 8, 9, and 10 lad, lay drunk on the streets from, from, from cheap gin. London was not a nice place to be. It was, a, it was a terrible place to be. And I said this in my blog. There was a, there's a, a, a philosopher called Voltaire. Those philosophers talked about the, the age of enlightenment, and what they tried to do was replace all faith with reason. And they introduced this thing that you don't need faith. Faith is superstition. We can work everything out, starting from ourselves. And basically, that's the birth of humanism. We can understand everything. We don't need God. God is just superstition. 
And uh, Voltaire made the statement, said, God, the name of Jesus is dead. Very soon it will be lost from the face of the earth. The great joke now, of course, is that uh, Voltaire's house in Geneva is now owned by the Bible Institute. And there's this guy called Bishop Butler, and he was trying to help to regenerate the church in the 1700s. He wrote this massive volume, just talking through all the doctrines of the church. It made no impact whatsoever, none. John Wesley was a a student at Oxford, a brilliant man, came from an an upper-class family, very bright. He He goes to Oxford to study, and his heart is to try and work towards salvation. Because the community is so prolific and it's so um, uh, immoral, many of those guys that were in the church were trying to encourage people towards good behavior. So what did they, that's why they were called Methodists, because they had a method, and their method was you fast, and you pray, and you do it regularly, and you seek God, and you read, and you do all this stuff in order that you might be worthy of coming to heaven one day. That was why it was called Methodism, because they had a method. And yet there was no power in Wesley's preaching. And at the same time, there's a young man called George Whitfield, called Dr. Squintum, because his eyes were cross-eyed. And when he preached, um, that's the truth. His eyes, and his enemies called him Dr. Squintum. They, he, was off, he had a number of times when people tried to kill him. But they were preaching this radical message of free grace. They came to a revelation. Whitfield first. That grace is free, that there's no other way to be saved except by the name of Jesus. You know why they hated George Whitfield? Because when he preached that to the upper classes, and he said, your hearts are like those of the harlots and the prostitutes, they didn't like that. We are upright citizens. How dare you say that our hearts are rotten? And he did. He said, all of you are exactly the same. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Didn't like it. I was reading a story uh, in one of these books where he was preaching down on the common, at one of the commons in London, and uh, it was in a spring fair, and the, all the jugglers and everyone were there, and he was drawing so many people away from the other stalls that the people running the fair didn't like it. So they started throwing stones and uh, rotten apples and offal. Dead cats. I'm not exaggerating. You go read the journals. That's what they threw. This one guy is so outraged, he gets up on the top of a stand and begins to urinate on, on Whitfield as he's preaching. You know what struck me? We think that revival is going to be so romantic. We think it's just going to, people are going to flood into the church and everyone's going to love us. We preach the gospel. Everyone's going to love us and God's just going to, uh, I don't think so. When you're preaching the gospel like they did, and the pubs are closing down, the, the pub owners were so mad they tried to kill them. I'm not exaggerating. In fact, I told Jill at Home Group on Wednesday that one of the first martyrs in the Methodist movement was killed just outside Bristol by the Welsh. <laughs> Jill. Didn't like what the guy was preaching. Threw a stone, hit him on the head. Died three days later. What are we going to, what do we expect? You know, when we pray for revival, what, do, what are we really hoping for? It's going to be all nice and middle class and it's all going to be sweet and people are just going to come in and fall down and the power of God's going to be there and it's all going to be cool. People are going to get saved and we're just going to waft around like, like nothing is going to change. I'm trying to encourage you for more because I believe God wants, does want to do more. I believe God wants to pour out of His Spirit again upon us all. And so there's this fresh move in the 1730s under Whitfield, Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards. And uh, no one knew their names then, but everybody knows 
their names now. One of the little events that I, I just want to kind of highlight just to show you what happens when the grace of God comes and the power of the Holy Spirit comes is Wesley had done all the study. He was a very brilliant man. He was trying to live this religious life. There was no power. He thought he'd go to Georgia in America. He thought he'd go there to kind of convert the slaves, you know, and did, uh, convert, convert the Indians, sorry. And it's, it's, he said this, I went to preach in order that I might find if I was worthy for salvation. That's what, that, that's what his motive was, right? So he gets on the ship, and he goes across, and during the journey, they have a four-day storm, right? It's not just like a storm for an hour or two. It's four days. They are being blown all over the ocean, and he's absolutely petrified. He realizes in that moment that he's afraid to die. He's petrified. And yet on the ship there are some Moravians, some Germans, German Moravians. They were followers of a guy called von Zinzendorf in Moravia. And uh, these men and women and little children are just sitting on the boat, and they're singing hymns. And they're absolutely relaxed. And they're not fearful at all. And it was something that stunned him. Because he knew his attitude was so opposite that he was carrying fear with him wherever he went. He, didn't, he wasn't sure of eternal security or salvation. And he wrote, and I'm going to quote from his journal. He wrote this a couple of years later after that experience. He said, They endeavored to show me a more excellent way, but I understood it not at first. I was far too learned and wise. And yet the simple faith of these men and women and these children it's one of the key moments in his life. He realized, actually, there's something that is not in my heart. So he goes to America. Some people do get saved when he preaches. But if they're saved into this kind of works-orientated thing. We've got to do a lot of stuff to please Jesus. There's little power. Very little power in his ministry. So he comes back after a year. He comes back to London. And he meets up with this German guy, again, called Birler. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. B-O-H-L-E-R with a little thing on the O. What is that? Bueller. 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 So he meets up with this guy, Bueller, who's a Moravian. And he once again is struck with this thing that he's so happy. He's so secure. He's a happy man. He's a relaxed man. And Wesley looks at his own life and thinks, I'm not happy. My life is driven. There's just, I'm not like this guy. And so he begins to hang out with him because he realizes that there's something in this man that he doesn't have. And one day Beulah says to him this. He says, true faith always bears two fruit, dominion over sin and constant peace from a sense of forgiveness. Dominion over sin. In other words, power over sin in your life. That you are, there's a sense that there's an overcoming in your life. And at the same time, there's a constant peace because you know that you are forgiven. And that was another turning point for Wesley because he realized he didn't have that peace. He didn't have that security. And if that was true faith, he didn't have it. So he started applying into the scripture. And he again uh, read the New Testament in Greek and came to Galatians. And he started to understand that salvation is by faith in Jesus and nothing else. And he starts to get this intellectual understanding, but it's, not, it's still not in his heart. There's no leap of faith in his heart. And so he goes to this guy, Billy. He says, look, I don't think I can preach anymore because, you know, I, I don't think I've got faith. I've got to stop preaching. So Billy says to him, preach faith until you have it, and then because you have it, you will preach faith. I love that advice. Sometimes we think God is so impatient with us. You've got to be perfect. Uh, this guy, Bueller, just encourages him to carry on preaching. Preach faith. One day you will have it. 
and then you'll preach it because you have it. So, I have to give this to the Methodists. They were amazing. Out of this thing of good works, it was a, not a right motivation, but they were the first to go to, to the prisons. And so uh, Wesley and these guys would regularly go to the prisons. And they went to, he thought he would try this out. So he goes to Newgate Prison. And one of the guys who's been sentenced to die, hanged for something, he starts preaching to this guy. And this guy gets revelation of what he's saying, that there's salvation by Christ, that the, the, the most sinful of sinners can come into a relationship with Christ and be set free instantly. And he believes it. And this is what Wesley writes in his, uh, in his journal as after the guy's executed. He says, in the last moments, he was enjoying a perfect peace in confidence that he was accepted in the beloved. You can't fake that. You're about to be killed, about to die, and there's an absolute peace and assurance that comes upon him. But Wesley still didn't have it for himself. And so this is the most famous story of all, really, if you've uh, read some of this church history. On the 24th of May, Wednesday, 1738, he goes with this guy to a little Moravian uh, service in, in, uh, in London in the evening, and I'm quoting now from the journal. They walk through the streets, past the alleys and brothels, over men and women lying drunk from Cheapton, waving away prostitutes until they reached Aldersgate Street. And he has an extract from his journal. He says, In the evening, I went unwittingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistles of the Romans. So some guy's reading the preamble to, to the Roman epistle. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation, an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin and even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. And in the moment, instantly in that meeting, everyone is filled with the Holy Spirit and they carry on praying for hours and hours and hours and hours. And the room is filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, some people point to this moment and say that's when he was really saved. Well, he didn't believe that because later he said this. Before that, I had the faith of a servant. And after that moment, I had a faith of a son. He just knew. He knew in his Noah that he was saved that God had saved him, that his sins were, his sins were dealt with. I, I want to I trust that every single one of you will have that assurance in your heart. That's what it means to be saved. You can flee death, you can flee fear forever by the power of the Holy Spirit working in, in you, bringing that assurance that you are a child of God. That's what we're trying to say. George Whitfield, to Mr. Squintum, he met another great preacher called Daniel Rowlands, and he was preaching. The, the revival was happening in Bristol, Newcastle, London, and these guys were all preaching parts of Wales. And he asked Daniel Rowlands, he says, uh, do you know your sins are forgiven? And he says, yes, I've known it for many years. And that was the thing that birthed the revival, that changed this community. And by the end of the 1700s, after these guys have been preaching for 30, 40 years, this nation was completely different. And the prosperity that came in the 18 and 1900s was due to some men preaching the gospel. And while the French Revolution was happening over the, over the channel, liberty, equality, fraternity for everyone, the gospel was transforming this community. Now what I'm saying to you is, I don't care that things are getting darker. I don't care. 
Oh, well, I do care that things are going to But you know what I'm saying? Why? Where is our trust? Is it in the gospel of Jesus? Is it in this little thing that we preach that no one can be saved except by the name of Jesus? Or is it subtly in the politicians and the economy and just my middle class life? We don't want that to be disturbed too much and we want Jesus to be added on somehow. I'm challenging you. I'm challenging myself. I'm challenging you that when you get together on Sundays, what do you expect when you come here? Is it just to meet with your mates and to have a cup of coffee? And that's all very pleasant and good. But are we expecting the power of God when we come here? I want to encourage you. I'm expecting more and more the power of God. I want to see people's lives transformed. I think our meetings should become a little bit wilder, a little bit less measured. Maybe we should have some things that are really just... People say, what is that? I'd rather have a little bit of, what is that? Than everyone just coming like week after week. Uh, we sit there. Let's see what he's got to say. That was good. Wasn't so good this week. Worship was okay. Go out there for coffee, push the pram. My friends, I'm trying to stir something and say, not to harp you up, but what is your expectation of when you come here? Not only that, but but how is the gospel going to be communicated to the community unless we all on fire? Wesley said, I set myself on fire and people come and watch me burn. That's what he said. He said he couldn't help it. There was just something in him. There was a fire in his bones. And wherever he was, he preached the gospel and it changed people. You know the revival meeting only happened at the end of the 18th century when a guy called Finney an American, a lawyer, very bright man. He had this thing of, I want to I convince people by the will that they need Jesus. And so he introduced this thing of apologetics, that you can, you can reason with people and they can come to Christ. And then he introduced some of the things that have become standard practice in the church. If, if you've ever been to evangelism meeting, how many times have you seen this? The pre- preacher will preach. And he'll say, Anyone experiencing the presence of God, put up your hand. And so a whole lot of people put up their hand. And what he's not telling you is the next thing he's going to call you out into the side, into the aisle. And then he'll say, oh yes, okay, presence of God with you. Okay, now come into the aisle. But yeah, he hasn't told you his next trick is he's going to ask you to come forward. And then he says, and now come forward. And then we lay hands on people. Pray this prayer after me. And now you're saved. Understand it intellectually, you're saved. And then what has to happen is after those meetings, you have to have people in little rooms. And what are they? They are the the follow-up team. Just to make sure that the people really understand that they really are saved. I'm not being cheeky, I'm, I'm being serious. The guys that preach, Wesley and those guys that preached in the great revivals, Jonathan Edwards and those guys, they never tried to gather any crowd. They didn't say we're having a revival meeting. They were just preaching in churches and because of what they were preaching, so many people came. They never made altar calls. They just preached the good news of Jesus until people became convinced in their hearts and had revelation. We want to preach to the mind. The Holy Spirit always preaches to the heart. That's it. 
And over a period, sometimes of months, people came to understand, oh, revelation, I need Jesus. I need a Savior. And on that basis, they got saved. And they didn't fall away. I believe in ministry. I think we should have ministry. I think we should pray for people. But endlessly calling people up. And you know what? If you're not secure in your salvation, if you don't know that you are saved, you will come forward again and again and again just to make sure. Just to make sure that I really am saved. Again and again and again. Man, when you know you're saved, you know you're saved. Once. That's it. I'm saved. I'm a child of God. The Holy Spirit has come into my heart, and he enables me to cry, Abba, Father. I know that I'm saved. I want to, that is one of the great things of the Holy Spirit coming in power in our lives. Then unfortunately, 1820s, a lot of things started happening to take away from this wonderful demonstration of the power of God. There was a movement in London in the 1820s. Guys were following this guy called Edward Irving. And it was called the Irving Art Movement. And he had, he had a church in Regent Square. And they were, they were the extreme Pentecostals. So they were into all the signs. And they wanted the signs. They were extreme, extreme Pentecostals. And what began to happen is that brought this discredit to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so they became again in this... In the life of churches, these people were nervous now of the Holy, expression of the Holy Spirit because of the excesses. There's a guy called Darby. Anyone heard of the, 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 the uh, theology around the rapture, the secret rapture? Well, that was introduced in the late 1800s by a guy called Darby. Never existed before then. Now, so many people just believe willy-nilly that we're going to be raptured. Now, if you believe in the rapture, I'm not here to offend you. Just go and read the scripture and see what the Bible does say about the, if there is anything like the rapture. Where the end, all the ones who believe just lifted off the earth and leave everyone else to suffer. What kind of gospel is that? <laughs> Sorry to be so naughty. So, discredit came on the charismatic movement. In the 1880s, there was this other phrase that came to the church, taking it by faith. How many of you heard that? You don't need to experience anything, just take it by faith, and it's yours. Only came in the late, late 1800s, and Tozer and Martin Lloyd-Jones and many others opposed that. And they said, if you, if you say you've got it by faith, show me. And we don't have to experience anything, we just take it by faith. You know? Just take it, name it, claim it. Well, if you've got it, let me see it. Anyway, I'm, I'm losing myself here. What I'm trying to say is there's this thing of experiencing the Holy Spirit in a powerful way, and there's this thing of, no, the Holy Spirit only does a secret deep work in us at salvation. And that's been the tension all through church history. There's a great revival in 1859 that swept across America and it made America what it is today. That's why America is so different to, to the UK. We didn't have that revival here, and they had it there. And on that basis, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have come into Christian uh, doctrine and understanding that we haven't experienced here. But people began here in 1959, which was the, the centenary year of that last great outpouring in America. They started to pray for revival here. And in 1962... 
what happened was the charismatic movement was birthed. There was suddenly again an awakening, a refreshing um, of the Holy Spirit, and people began to experience the, the, the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, although it was a very positive thing, it again divided people into two, two kind of camps in the church. Those that said you experience the Holy Spirit in a real way, and those who said you don't. And we've lived with that tension in the church. I'm trying to convince you this morning that we need not only to know that we are sons and daughters, and the Holy Spirit brings us to that point in our lives, and when we are saved, that happens, but too, that we can live in Galatians 4. That because the Holy Spirit has made me a son, I can cry, Abba, Father, and I can experience the power of the Holy Spirit daily in my life. I want to encourage you. I want to bring you to the point of believing that for yourself. Because I am trusting for this year that this church is going to be radically changed. Yes. By the power of the Holy Spirit. That we won't know what to expect in our meetings. That they will be so diverse and exciting that God is just going to do amazing things. Anyone want that? I'm not, I'm not trying to do the evangelist thing either. I promise you. I'm not going to call you out. Nothing. I'm just saying, do you want that? Or do you want to just carry on like we are? I mean, it's been good for the last 10 years. It has. I'm thrilled. But hey, there's so much more. Isn't there? Absolutely. So what can we expect? I've got seven things I want to just um, mention briefly. What should we trust for in terms of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, it's more than anything experienced in the Old Testament. More than anything. Elijah, Moses, David all had amazing experiences of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but it's more than that. It's a higher level than anything experienced in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus said, it's better for you that I go so that the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, can come. So, in a sense, it's better than even having Jesus with us. Have you ever thought about it like that? It's better than having Jesus here right now, the power of the Holy Spirit in us, transforming us, making us more like Christ. Secondly, I want to say to you, it is experiential. We can experience it. The day of Pentecost shows that Galatians 3, the scripture that we've looked at this morning, it is experiential. I don't know how you can read the New Testament and read all those stories of power and miracles and signs and wonders and churches being planted and then say, I don't believe that those things are for today. That's called cessationist theology. All the stuff that happened in the New Testament was for that time. And it's not for us now. That's what the Baptists basically believe. So you can believe theoretically in the Holy Spirit, but not practically. Not like He wants to do anything in, in me radically today. You with me? How can you know? There's a book by Martin Lord Jones called Unspeakable Joy. How can you receive unspeakable joy and not experience it? <laughs> How can you? What about Pentecost? Why, why did Paul say that to the Galatians? He said, uh, did you first receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing that came by faith and, and, and the Spirit was poured out upon them? Do you think they ever forgot, forgot that day when the Holy Spirit came upon them in power? It changed them for the rest of their lives. Fourthly, we can expect a sealing of our sonship and an absolute assurance of salvation. I want you to be honest before God this morning. If you don't really know that you're saved, get, get alone before God. 
Seriously. I mean, it's the most important thing that's going to happen in your life, that you know that you are saved. We've received the spirit of sonship that leads us to cry, Abba, Father. It's a sealing of that. You can, you, it is possible to live free of fear forever. Just like Wesley had to get to that point of realizing he was afraid to die. All of us can live free of that fear. The Holy Spirit is witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God. You know what happened to Jesus as well? He knew that he was God's son. When he was a little boy, he said, I'm, I'm about my father's business in the temple. But what happened? That amazing thing that happens when he's, when he's baptized in the Jordan and the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. What are the words from the Father? You are my son, and in you I am well pleased. And there was just a deeper re- understanding, revelation in him that he was the son of God. The Puritans called that infallible assurance. Infallible assurance that you absolutely know that you are a son. Nothing can take it away. No trial, no tribulation, no hard times. Nothing can take it away. You know that you're a son. And then, fifthly, we want the power of the Holy Spirit to come because it empowers all of our gifts. It's the lubricating oil. Remember Helen did that message of the oil of the Holy Spirit. That's why we speak about anointing. It's a term in terms of oil. Things happen easier when there's anointing. When someone is preaching and there's an anointing, it just flows. When someone is leading worship and there's anointing, it flows. When someone is praying, for, you can feel a tangible sense of anointing. It's the Holy Spirit. And there are many examples in the Scripture. It says often when Moses met, with, Moses met with, with God, his face would shine. You, you can see it. Um, Michael Eaton told the story of this guy who was preaching, and there was a young man in his congregation and he asked him if he had been baptized in the Spirit. And the man said, no, but if that's what makes your face shine, I want it. In a sense, sometimes when people are preaching, there's, you can see there's a radiance, there's a shining glory that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a guy called Robert Murray McShane, and he was a famous preacher. When he came out of the vestry to even walk up into the, into the pulpit, people were so struck by what they saw in his face that they repented before he even preached. He said, what must I do to be saved? I can see that you're saved. My friends, I want to say this. There's a great variety of ways that God pours out of His Spirit. For some, it's like a radical thing. For some people laugh. For some people cry. For some people, it's like a massive explosion. For other people, it's just like a small rising tide in their hearts. It doesn't matter. The important thing is that we get to to that happening. It's going to be different for everybody. It doesn't matter how it happens for you as long as you know that assurance of salvation, as long as you know the anointing of God in your life, as long as there's power in your life. I don't care how it happens. I want it to happen. Anyone can say amen to that. And then sixthly, now, when, you, when, you, when you have that tangible experience of the power of the Holy Spirit, it feels like you're never going to sin again. Isn't that true? They're radical. That's why people get addicted to that kind of meeting because it feels, you, you feel like such power. I, I'm never going to sin again. But unfortunately, we all do sin, right? But what it does when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, what God is doing in our hearts, it kind of speeds it up, doesn't it? So he, it's like he magnifies the working that he's doing and, and we just feel these deep things happening quickly and it's powerful. 
It's like when the, when the rains come, when everything is brown and uh, you, I don't know, the first spring rains we've had here, we mowed our lawn and instantly the lawn is just like, like that. And for, <laughs> and for months and months, it's just been little spikes and kind of, now there's just growth everywhere and weeds everywhere. There's life there, but it's just speeded up by the rain. It's the same when the Holy Spirit comes, isn't it? The power of the Spirit just speeds everything up, brings life. There's a lushness. There's, man, I want to see people fill this place with that in their hearts. Born again by the Spirit of God. Born into the family of God. On fire by the Spirit. I can't stir that up in you. It can only happen as you cry out to the Holy Spirit. Can I just also say this in terms of the, the last thing, and then we're going to worship. The gift of the Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is not just speaking in tongues. And this has also been a contentious thing in church history. It can include that. There are many people that do speak in tongues, but if you don't speak in tongues, it doesn't mean you're not baptized in the Spirit. Can I just say that? Not everyone has to speak in tongues. And there are some Pentecostal movements that have said, preach that if you do not speak in tongues, you're, you're not saved. That is rubbish. That is not what the Bible says. Can I give you some examples also? There's a, anyone heard of D.L. Moody? Yeah, a very famous guy in the Chicago. He, he didn't speak in tongues. And look what God did through him. Can you t- you're saying to me that he didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit? No, he did. John Knox. Anyone heard of John Knox? Famous Scottish uh, reformer. He, he, didn't, uh, he was a great preacher. He went to France, and there he became even more famous than he was in Scotland. And they said of him that he prayed more than anybody else that uh, lived in France because there was not a moment that he was in his room wherever he stayed that people didn't hear him praying. So this was a, he was a devout man. He was a man of power. Didn't speak in tongues. Had a young disciple called John Welsh. He used to go around with him, and the guy died. And so uh, the doctors came, said they must prepare the body for burial. He said, no, not dead. And people laughed. After three days, two, three days, the doctor said, we really have to bury this guy now. They said, no, I want a morning to pray. Prayed for him. The guy was raised, for the, raised from the dead. And that, that guy had a prophetic word that outlined the future of of uh, what happened in Scotland for decades in advance. And he didn't speak in tongues. You want to tell me that he didn't have the power of God? <laughs> Anyone heard of Billy Graham? Billy Graham's a Baptist. Southern Baptist doesn't speak in tongues. You want to tell me that he doesn't have the power of God? <laughs> How many people have been saved through his ministry? My friends, I'm, I'm just trying to Stir your hearts. All I want to say this morning as I finish, let's not get into what we expect. Let's just expect the Spirit to come. Let's cry out for the promise of the Spirit. Like we read in in, in Acts chapter 2, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. I want to stir in your heart that you would cry for more of the Holy Spirit in your life, more of the power of God in your life this year. Regardless of what your experience has been, more of Jesus. We don't want to seek if tongues come, how beautiful is that? If prophecy comes, that's amazing. If people shake and fall, that is wonderful. I don't have any problem with any of that. Let's just seek Jesus. Let's just seek the Holy Spirit. Let's cry out and say, God, we will not let you go until you bless us like this. Anyone in the house. You know? It's more than just being plugged into an electric current. It's much, much more than that. It's the absolute assurance of the Father sealing your heart 
that you are a son, that you are a daughter forever. And when people understood that, what does it say in Acts? It says they went out and they preached very boldly that Jesus was the Christ and nothing could take it away. And they didn't care if they were persecuted, killed, thrown to the lions. They stood because that revelation was in their hearts. Man, that's a different thing. (laughs) That is a completely different thing. There's no standard procedure. But we've got to get to that place of, Lord, I know that I'm a son. It's sealed in my heart. The power of your spirit is upon me. I want to live my life for you. Amen?